The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to the Miracle of Healing, where we come together every week to discuss and discover a roadmap to healing. I'm your host, Lisa Campion, and I hope you can join us since the world needs all the healing it can get. And we are healing the planet one person at a time right here on Mind, Body, Spirit FM. Hi there, I'm your host Lisa Campion and I'm super happy that you're tuning in with us today. Thanks for being here, I think you're really gonna enjoy our show. So we have a a wonderful guest today. Robert Snow is a veteran police detective who was devoted his whole life to evidence and facts and had never given a single thought to reincarnation. But at some point during a hypnotic uh, regression that he had, he experienced a vivid awareness of some of his past lives. Um, and even though he experienced this, he was skeptical. He was skeptical about it. And because he's an, an investigative detective, did what detectives do. He investigated in um, history, you know, these historical scenes that he had seen and ended up being able to prove his past lives were, were true. And then he wrote this amazing book about it called Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. Um, so thanks so much for being here today, Robert. Thank you for having me. So what an incredible story. I mean, I, I'm one of those pe- one of these people that like was basically born psychic. So this whole these whole ideas of past lives and, you know, all this psychic world was not really anything new to me. But it must have been a bit of a shock um, for you to come upon it the way that you did. Yeah, it did. It did. Because I was a police officer for 38 years. I was a captain at the Indianapolis Police Department. And this is not something police officers believe in, really isn't. But interesting enough, I knew I never really wanted to be a police officer. Never growing up, it never occurred to me to be a police officer. The only thing I ever wanted to be was a writer. And being, a, I just fell in the police work by accident. So, as it better turn out, being very fortuitous is because being it's nice to be a writer, but it's nicer to have something to write about. Yeah. Now, I, I, I presently have 20 books in print, and they're all about law enforcement. Even the, my book, uh, Portrait Pass I Skeptic, is about in a deep, a really deep investigation I did. But the thing about the being a writer is you just can't just be a writer. You, you have to also be a reader. If you want to be a good writer, you have to be a very voracious reader because yep. you have to see how other writers handle things. And you don't read just from your area of expertise. You read all areas. It's just basically, see, if you see a passage that's really well done, you want to kind of dissect it and see how the writer did it. And then, I was a literature major in college, and I, so yeah. I totally get it. And I've, ri- I've written three books myself, so I, I feel you. Conversely, if you see something's really bad and you want you want to know to avoid that in the future. But anyway, so being a reader, I I at one time belonged to a lot of different book clubs, and one time I saw a book in the book club called "Coming Back" by Dr. Raymond Moody. It was a mm-hmm. book Dr. Moody had pre- had previously done uh, exper- experience uh, experiments on uh, past life. I mean, not past life on near death experiences. Right. Well, he had a friend who was a psychologist who did past life regression therapy, and she persuaded him 
to do a, do a session, to be hypnotized and supposedly taken back to past lives. This is a therapy that actually an awful lot of psychiatrists and psychologists use right. simply because it works. Most of them don't yeah. believe it's real, but they know it works. In other words, if you have a problem, like you've got a terrible pain in your elbow, but they can't find it. They do a CAT scan and they do an MRI and they can't find anything. Quite often, if you go, they go to a past life regressionist, they'll take them to a past life and they almost always go to where the accident happened. And then you find yourself on a battlefield, you get shot in the elbow or something like that. And mm-hmm. interesting enough, it usually takes care of the problem. So a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists I found do use it. They don't believe it's real. They believe that the pain is psychosomatic and so is the cure. But anyway, uh, she talked, uh, there's a friend talked Dr. Moody and doing it. He went back to, uh, I think it was eight or nine past lives. And he read the book it was really very well written. It was interesting. But at the end of the book, he kind of, he kind of hedged and said, eh, I don't really know what this was. I don't really know if it's past lives or my imagination. And that's kind of the way I felt about the, it. I thought, yeah, that sounds fun, but I don't think it's real either. So, but anyway, so a few months later, I was at a party, uh, and I was talking to a woman. She's a, a she was a police detective, but also a practicing psychologist. And we was late in the party. We were, you know, just talking about movie, you know, movies we'd seen and you know various things, television programs. And she started mentioning books. And I remembered this book. And I told her that I'd read this book. And she wanted to know what I thought about it. And it was kind of late in the party. I had a bit of drink. I kind of belittled the idea of past life. But, and I didn't realize at the time that she used past life regression therapy in her practice. And I mm. really kind of really belittled it. Mm. And she finally got to the point where she dared me. She said, well, if you think it's so silly, try it yourself and then see if you think it's silly. Well, of course, I said, no, I'm not doing that. But then she said, oh, you're scared. Nah, you don't want to ask a man if he's scared. You know, you're not going to say that. <laughs> so anyway, I, I agreed eventually. And she gave me that name and number of a friend of hers who did pass life regression. Well, the next day, being you know more clear-headed and everything, I thought, I ain't doing this. This is stupid. No, I'm not going to do it. But then it seemed like from then on, I would run to this woman every time. Every the police department, I'd run to her almost every day. Before this, I swore I didn't run to her maybe once every couple of months. After this, I got to see her every day. And when I'd see her, she'd ask me, have you made the appointment yet? And I keep making some excuses. Now I had two meetings and reports and had, you know, had all these cases and everything. And it just kept happening. I just kept seeing her. And she don't be crazy. I'd see her up down the hallway and I'd want to take the trying to find a clearest exit. You know, finally, I decided this is silly. This is silly. You can't keep hiding the rest of your career here because you promised you something. You don't want to do it. So I finally called the lady, a Dr. Mary Ellen Griffith, and I made an appointment. I thought, and then I was kind of, by that time I was kind of angry. I said, well, what I decided I was going to do, I was going to go to the past life regression th- session. I was going to cooperate fully. I'll do everything she asked me to do. Then I could, I, and, I, and I was going to tape it myself. I, I, called, I told her after I forgiven could, she didn't see any problem. I was going to tape it so I could go back and show the this police department psychologist, see, nothing happened. It was foolish. It's just foolishness. Because I believed at that time, that it was all just weak-minded people who are looking for excuses for their present life. In other words, you could say, gee, my life is really and really in the dumps, but it's not my fault. You know, they blame it on past life. So anyway, I went and seen the Dr. Griffin, very nice lady, very, very, very gracious, very nice, welcome to the office, very nice. And so we, we, I, she asked me, you know, what I was there for, and I told her I thought past life uh, therapy sounded interesting. I wanted to try it. I said, okie dokie. So she said, okay, sit down on the couch. So we talked a little bit first about, about my life and career. Then she sit down. She says, close your eyes. She says, can you see a balloon? Well, actually, I could. I could see a big purple circle, but I knew it was just light coming in from the window to my right. I said, she said, can you see a balloon? I said, yeah, yeah. She said, okay. She goes, imagine yourself climbing in the balloon. 
Okay, imagine taking off. Now, I'm, again, I'm, I decided I'm going to cooperate 100%. So I tried to imagine this. And she said, okay, now look down. Do you see any place you want to stop? Here's enough. I looked at the bottom of my eyes, eyelids. It looked like little dot, little points of light down below. But I figured, I just figured the time would just glare off the floor. So anyway, she said, okay, we're going to find, take, we're going to take the balloon down and land somewhere. And she said, so she said, land the balloon. Eh, nothing happened. And she said, okay, now there's a control over your head. Reach up and pull the control and we'll land the balloon. I, again, this is her. I, I think myself, this is her daydream, not mine. I mean, I was going to cooperate, but I'm not going to imagine something just for her. And again, we went through this probably 12, 15 times. Land the balloon, land the balloon, and nothing happened. And she'd say, well, these are obviously places you don't want to stay, you don't want to go to. She said, okay. But this time I'd been sitting there probably 10, 15 minutes on the couch, and you know, I was getting kind of tired of it. You know, I, I, I thought, I, at the time, I thought, this is so silly. This is so foolish. And then anyway, she said, okay. Try to imagine a mountain in your mind. Try to imagine a mountain. Now, I figure I've been sitting there, must have been tired, because I could see a mountain. I mean, it wasn't a picture of clear, but it was just a kind of an imaginary mountain. I could see it in my mind. She said, okay, take the balloon over to the mountain and says, and land it. So I tried to imagine, I find, tried to imagine doing that. I was getting tired of sitting there. She said, okay, what do you see? Do you see the log cabin there? And there's enough, I could see a log cabin there, but the logs were going vertical rather than horizontal. One of my writer, one of my readers later wrote and told me that's the way the French built their log cabins. But anyway, hmm. she said, okay, go in the cabin, see what you see. What do you see? And again, I didn't see anything. Again, this is her daydream. I didn't see. She said, okay, imagine it's it's bright and full of food. So I tried to imagine that, you know. So then she, we, we talked a little about the, about the cabin and all that. She said, okay, now I'm going to go. You go outside. There's, we're going to walk down to the valley. And she said, there's 12 steps. She said, I'm going to walk you down, down. I'm going to count as you walk. And it really got, I, she started counting as 12. And each, each, each number, she got longer, 11, 10. And I'm almost starting to laugh. I thought, because this is like the stage, you know, it's, silly. it's almost silly. So she kind of kept counting. And I kept imagining myself walking down the steps. Here's enough, when she hit some, one, something really bizarre happened. I was in a valley. I did it. I mean, I just don't imagine I was in a valley. I didn't, you know, think it was a daydream valley. I was in a valley. And it was vividly clear. It was really, it wasn't frightening, but it was just startling because I knew what happened. I mean, I thought I was pretty strong. Well, I really didn't believe I could be hypnotized, but I realized the moment, yeah, you have been because I, I was in the walking by. But at the same time, I could feel a couch underneath me. I could hear a noise on the street out there mm. to the right. But at the same time, I was in a valley and it was just vividly clear. I could, I, I was walking along a path next to a brook and I could feel a breeze in my face. I figured it was just the air conditioning in the office, but I could feel a breeze. And I could see the leaves moving and the breeze blowing my face. And I, could, I, I it was so clear, I could see the veins and the leaves. And, I, and yeah. again, I thought, it's, you know, it's a sound, it's just like, this is kind of like going to Disney World, some music park and being one of their virtual reality rides that is so clear. It's, it looks real. I mean, it looks vividly right. real, but you know, it's not. You know it's just your imagination or subconscious thoughts coming up. So anyway, she said, okay. She says, look down. What do you see? Look at, look down at yourself. And I looked down. I could see two bare feet and dirty, hairy legs. I was wearing fur. In my left hand, I was carrying a piece of a tree limb. I didn't remember this till I looked. I didn't remember the time, but I went back and listened to the tape. And she told me when I went down the valley, she said, I want you to go back to the very first life you lived on Earth. So wow. I described it. Everybody knows what a caveman looks like. I thought everybody's seen movies and books. You know what this is. You are, you are the cue you kidding yourself. But then suddenly, it's like it's like I had a separate compartment of mind. I started started saying 
and I can I can I can I can understand what this person I was by us having was thinking, and I, I realized this was my home. I told Doctor, this is my home. So I live in a cave up on the side of the hill. And I and that's funny. And I was, I would start talking, and I didn't know why. Usually, when you talk in this world, you always have a split second or two to think what you're going to say before you say it. Well, in this case, I did. I would just blabber out something, and I had no idea I was going to say it. So she said, "Okay," says that. Go to the cave. Go to your cave. Now, again, I didn't walk here. Just like a few few moments of kind of gray fog, and I'm at the cave. And funny enough, I'm staying at the entrance of the cave, and whoever lived here was not very hygienic. I just, it had a really bad smell. I couldn't, I would think myself, the, the breeze I thought was just air conditioning. I couldn't figure with this. I couldn't imagine what's coming. But the person who lived there wasn't hygienic. So anyway, I described the cave and everything to her. She said, okay. So I want you to go to your death. Go to your death and tell me what you see. So again, there was just everything that phase out, be like three or four seconds, that kind of a gray fog. When I came back, I wasn't in the body any longer. I was folding above him. And I could see a little skinny man laying on the floor of the cave. And he was shivering and coughing real hard. I could tell I was really, whoever, I guess it was me at the time, was really, really sick. So I talked to the girl. She said, okay, now go out of the cave, look up over the valley. Do you see a light? So I went out of the cave and over the valley, there was a big, bright light. And she says, okay. I said, what, what, was, what was the point of your life? So what did you learn from this life? And again, I started talking for anyone to say, I said, the point was to experience loneliness. I didn't have anybody at all in this life. It was just me all by myself, my whole life. And that was the point. So, again, oh. I didn't know I was going to say that. So, he said, okay, so go into the light. So, I want you to go to a life where you did have someone. So, I, I went into the light. And, again, there's three or four seconds of gray fog. And all of a sudden, uh, that scene come on. Now, I don't know if people are old enough to remember in the movie theaters the other day. Sometimes you start the movie, and it'd be all blurry. And you could not, you know, it's real blurry. And all of a sudden, it snap into focus. Well, this is what it was. For several seconds, I could tell I was walking along a street, but everything was blurry. And suddenly, it came into focus. And I could tell it looked like I was in about the late 1800s because there were horse-drawn carriages and there were a gas street lights. The street lights were gas lights. And I'm walking along. But the funny thing, I could feel the sun. It was a hot day. I could feel the sun beating down me. Now, I'm sitting into a closed air-conditioned office, but I could feel the sun beating down on me. So she said, okay, what are you doing? I said, I described myself to her, who, what I look like, my clothes, I'm and everything. And she said, where are you going? And again, I just blabbered out, so I'm going to meet a woman. She said, okay, now you meet her, where do you go? I said, her and I went to an outdoor cafe. She said, what do you order? And I said, I, I ordered a glass of wine, and she ordered some kind of special water. So we talked about it for a few minutes, and she said, okay, so now go five years ahead in your life. What happens? So again, through the gray fog, and all of a sudden, I'm in a hallway arguing with a woman who I somehow knew was my wife. I just, this person, the person by us, and knew it, and so I knew it. This is my wife. We're having an argument about money, apparently. And finally, I just storm off. And leave, and I walk down the hall, and I walk into a, uh, a room. It's a very, it's a real, a very long room, and it's got skylights above. And one, the wall, the right wall, and I walk in the room is solid windows. I look around; there are just dozens of paintings hanging all over the walls. And again, suddenly, I realize I'm a painter. That's how I, that's how I make my living. I'm painting. Should we talk? So we talk about this for a while. And she said, "Okay." She said, "Now I want you to go another five years in your life, and go another five years." So. I go, and I'm at a party at some kind of party. Now, I don't know what it was for, but I knew I was the guest to honor, and everybody kept coming up congratulating me. And I could feel in myself, this is one of the happiest moments of this man's life. Whoever this person was, this was a very happy moment for him. You could, you could feel that. I could actually feel his happiness, how happy he felt about it. And she said, okay. 
I said, go to that, go five years. But I didn't. And that's the interesting thing about hypnosis. People seem to think they watch too much stage hypnosis and all. You're not really under the control of the hypnotist. You know exactly what you can do, whatever you want to do. Because she kept telling me, I go to five years and I wouldn't. Simply because you think, how many how often in your life do you ever experience true, true happiness? Not that you often. To, you wanted you, to stay in the happiness. Yeah, yeah. Why would you? Yeah. So I've stayed for a little while. So finally she said, now you need to go to the, to the next life. She said, I want you to go to your death. So, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm laying in this bed and in a, in, a, in, a, in a bedroom in a bed and I'm dying. And I see my body come, you know, everybody's seen movies, everybody's seen ghost movies and all that. Yeah, I saw myself come out of my body and I went through the ceiling of the, of the building I was in. And I look around, I was over, I was in a huge city. There were lights to the horizon in all directions. It's a huge city. And I could, t- I could tell that it looked like it wasn't winter or it wasn't, and it wasn't summer. It's like fall. It was like a cool, crisp night. And Dr. said, okay. He says, what did you regret about this life? I told her I regretted that I, we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. And she said, okay, now go into the light. But again, I didn't. I saw myself flying through some woods. And I didn't understand. I could tell it was fall because the, the trees still had leaves, though it looked like a cool, crisp night. And rather than go to light, I saw myself flying through the woods. And all of a sudden, I was looking in the second or third floor window of a, of a big mansion. And I'm looking in this room, and there's a big fire in the fireplace. And there's a painting over the mantel. Nobody's in the room, but there's a big fire in a panel. And I told Dr. Griffith, I wanted to look at one of my paintings before I left. I want to look one more time at one of my paintings before I left. And she said, okay. So next thing she said, okay, now I want you to go to a life where you are a woman. I remember laughing myself at the moment. I thought, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, it did. <laughs> it did. Next thing, and again, there's three or four minutes of fog. And all of a sudden, I found myself, and I could tell I was in a young girl's body. This, again, this, this, was, this was so far back in time. I was in, I was in ancient Greece. And I, I worked at an altar. As a young girl, I worked at an altar. And it was, it was, it was interesting. But again, it's one of these things. You think, well, everybody knows what that looks like. Is that really true? You know, this kind of thing. So anyway, we went through this life as the altar girl. And she said, okay, now I want you to go back to your most previous life. Go to the back, the life you had before you were Bob Snow. So again, there were three or four minutes of fog. And I found myself, I could tell I was back in the artist's body. I was, mm-hmm. And there's at the moment, I was painting a portrait. And again, these, the, the vision was so clear. I could see every brush stroke in this portrait. But the interesting part was it was a portrait of a hunchback woman. I thought how mm. unusual that was. Mm. That's not, got, the norm, not really the normal subject for our painting. No, 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 as I found out later when I was researching this, no, not very, not very common at all. But it was a woman with a hunchback, and I, I, and I was painting her. And, doc, and I was telling Dr. Griffin, I'm, I'm painting portraits. I hate painting portraits. I hate them, but I need the money. I really need the money, and I could feel this. I could feel this person's need to make for money. This person had this tremendous need for money. And I could and again, and again. So she said, "Okay." We talked about this a while. And she said, "Now go five years. Go five. Go five years ahead." And so I see myself. I'm having a very, real vigorous argument with someone about the lighting for one of my paintings. And I said, "Just having this big, big argument." So anyway, we talked about that for a while. And she said, "Okay, go another five years." So I go five years, and I'm in a, in a garden, and I can hear piano music coming from a house. Real close. Up so I walked into the house, and my wife was there playing a piano with a lot of people standing around. She said, where are you at? I said, and again, I just blurted out. I said, we're in France. I had no idea how I knew that, but the body I was in knew that. I said, we're in France. So we talked a minute about that. I said, okay, 
said, I, I want you to go another, you know, another five years. So again, there's a gray fog. But while I was in the fog, all of a sudden I felt this tremendous grief come over me. I mean, tremendous sadness. I almost felt like I was going to cry. And I thought, this is silly. I don't know even what I'm talking about. I said, she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. Now, I had no idea who I was talking about, but who it was, this, whoever, what woman I was talking about, she was very, very important to this person. Then, like I said a couple times, she died of a blood clot. Then all of a sudden, the recorder I brought wrong, wrong snapped off, opened my eyes, and it was over. Now, I, now I was kind of flustered because I'd gone there with so determined that nothing's going to happen. This is all silliness that I really, I was really, I didn't know what to do. I was kind of flustered. Dr. Griffith asked me, he said, can you see how it relates to your present life and all this? And I really could at the moment. I was getting, I was, I wanted to get out of there. I was too flustered about what had happened. More than that, so I went out, I, I wrote her a check for the time, went out the car, and I sat in my car for a while. What really bothered me about the thing was not what I saw because I knew I was just hypnotized. What bothered me was that was the vid, how vivid it was. How I mean, this wasn't like you just imagined. You couldn't really like make that stuff up if you tried, right? No, I like- know. And again, I had thought about past lives when I went there, but a caveman, an older girl, and a painter certainly weren't any of the three I thought would come up. And I sat there and thought about it for a while, and it just it bugged me only because it was so vivid. So. Finally, I decided, Bob, you just got to forget forget about it, Bob. It's, it's not a big deal. It's just your subconscious mind bring up old, old fractured memories and piece them together into a story. That's all it is. It's nothing. Don't don't worry about it. Well, that's easy to say. But for the next probably three to four weeks to a month, I thought about it constantly. I thought about it 50, 60 times a day. And the interesting part wow. is for, for the first couple of years after the regression, if I closed my eyes, I could still see it, vivid as it was at the time. I could still see the painting, the brush strokes in the paintings. We got to stop and take a quick break. All and right. I want to I want to um, come back. And when we come back, we're here, how you investigated all this, because it's so right. interesting. But let's take a quick break for our sponsors right now. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. And we are back with Robert Snow talking about his book, Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic. So anyway, after after the session, again, I was... Complete, I was becoming obsessed with this. I really was. I, I could, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I think about it constantly, mainly because of vividness. And, and after a while, it started to worry me because, as a police officer, I've dealt with a lot of people who had bad, had deep obsessions. And believe me, that never, that hardly ever turns out well. You're like, were you so like I, worried I, you were going crazy a little bit? I, you know, I don't just, I couldn't stop thinking about it constantly. I just, I, I closed my eye, I could see the scenes again, and and just, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I thought, what I need to do. I need to find one of the two paintings, either the still life over the fireplace or the hunchback woman. I thought if I could find either one of those, I was on the, oh, yeah, that's where I saw I saw it. I saw it in this life somewhere. And now you're just, you know, you probably saw a little bio of the artist and you're, so you're making, you're just making this all up type thing. 
That's all it is. You're just your subconscious memories that you're just bringing back up. So anyway, I said, well, okay, what I need to do, I need to go to the library. Now, this was in this was in pre-internet days. And so in those days, you just didn't put uh, Hunchback Woman painting in a, in a search engine and find it. In those days, you had to go to the library and pull book, books off the shelf. And so I went down to the Amps Public Library. And so I decided I'd go through their art books, all their art books. And then I'd find, I'm sure, I, I figured these had to be famous paintings, or I wouldn't know them. I'm not, not a real big art aficionado or anything. I don't know that much about art. So I figured they had to be probably in the library. So I went down there. And now I was kind of dismayed at first because they have, I found they have hundreds of art books. <laughs> mm. and I went down, I went down every day on my lunch hour and, and, mo, and did like a couple hours on weekends. I went through every single book, every single art book library, and didn't find either one. Now that kind of just made me because I thought, now come on, now you can you couldn't have made up anything that vivid. I mean, I, I'm sure so when I could still see a painting, I could see every brushstroke. So I thought, well, maybe I need to find somewhere that maybe it has more books than here. So I started visiting various bookstores, bookstores, you know, around the, around Indianapolis and looking through their art collection, their art book collection, art books. And that took me another couple of months. I still didn't. I, so I even called some art galleries and described the paintings to them. But this time, again, this is pre-internet days. And there was, and you found there was no central listing anywhere of art. You had to, you had to basically know where it was, or know somebody who might know where it was, because they told me, you know, you have to know. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't keep any listings. So I gave, kind of gave that up. And finally, I even went back to Dr. Griffith for a second session. I thought maybe I could find out more about this. So I could see where this information come from. Now I had it was very interesting. She went through another. Went through. I went through another session, but these were all lies way too far back in history to really be a bit of bearing proof. And every time I'd ask her about going to the artist, she would try to get me there. Nothing would happen. Mm. When we were done, I asked her, she said, well, obviously, you know everything you need to know about him. Now, I didn't think so at the moment. She, it turned out she was right, but I didn't think so at the moment. So finally, I said, well, maybe I need to find out what happened during this session. So I visited a New Age bookstore in Indianapolis and got some books on past life regression therapy. And in one of the books, I noticed it had a script for self-hypnosis. And so I mm. thought, maybe maybe I'll try that. Let me tell you something. That's a lot harder than you That's a lot harder to do than you think. I'd probably yeah. try it a dozen, a dozen times. And twice, I could feel myself going into the state I was in Dr. Griffith's office. But then it only lasts a few seconds. I would see the number 1917. That's all I'd see. I'd see the number 1917. Then it'd blip. It'd be gone. So finally... I finally decided, you know, when I was in homicide, charge of homicide, we had an 83% clearance rate in Indianapolis. And that's an excellent clearance rate for homicides. But that still means that 17% of the homicides a year go unsolved. Simply, we don't have enough evidence, we don't have enough information, and we simply can't solve it. And I figured that's what's going to happen. This won't happen here. This case is just not going to be solved. I need to put it on the shelf and forget about it. Now, in murder cases, you put them on the shelf, you don't forget about them. If any new evidence came up, you'd immediately reactivate them, but you need to stop working on it because now that you're, you've searched every avenue and there's nothing left. So that's what I decided to do. It didn't work. I still thought about it all the time. But anyway, a few months later, my wife is coming to our anniversary is coming up. It's April and our anniversary is coming up. And we decided to take a trip somewhere neither one of us had been. So she called one day when I was at work and wanted to know, how about New Orleans? I thought, well, that's not like fun. I'd never been to New Orleans. She had either. So we made, we did a trip for New Orleans, and we, we had a good time there. She's a real art art fan. She, I mean, an art history fan. Excuse me, history fan. She likes history. So when you go to New Orleans, you can't throw a rock without hitting some historical there. So we visited plantations and battlefields and all kinds of things. So anyway, 
but the last day we were there, we were our plane didn't leave till the evening. And I noticed the, in the evenings we go down to the French Quarter and listen to the bands and have a few drinks, listen to the bands and everything. I noticed going down there, they're all kind of really interesting stores. Of course, they were closed at the time we went down there. This is evening. There's art. There were art. There are art stores. There were memor, um, historic memorabilia stores. Uh, oh gosh, antique stores. So we decided we go window shop in the French Quarter spend our day. So we started doing that. We went to various uh, memorabilia stores and uh, they had some beautiful antique stores down there. But anyway, we finally, we finally got to, to over to, to, to a street. It was nothing but uh, art galleries. And we started at one end. There was just art galleries all down the street here. So we started, we started looking at the galleries and had some beautiful paintings. But I noticed as we went down the street, they, the galleries kept getting smaller and the painting, the painters and painters more obscure. So finally, we got down to a uh, little small art store at the end of the street. It was a Royal Street, by the way. It was, at that time, and this has been the early 90s, it was all art galleries at Royal Street. So anyway, the last we get to a little small gallery, and I walk in the door, and it says, Modern Art Upstairs. My wife's a fan of modern art. I'm not. So she went upstairs. I'm walking along the first floor. I don't recognize any of the paintings or the painters. I walk along. We'll uh, just glance and look at them. And I, I get to, there's a, there's a portrait sitting on the east on the corner, and I walk by and give it a glance. Then I stopped as if I'd hit a wall. I was frozen. I turn around and look. It's the painting of the hunchback woman. Now I tell you, I was I was a police officer for thirty eight years, and I had a lot of times I was scared. A lot of times I was frightened. And a kid, don't kid yourself. You may look brave on TV or play something, but believe me, you're scared in a lot of situations. But I don't. I have never been this frightened. Only because I in 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 police work, if you have a scary situation, you have training experience. You know what to do. You know what your best response is, the best avenue to take. In this case, I didn't know what to do. I had never, didn't have any experience, any training. What do you do? Because I, I looked at it and it's like, no, this can't be happening. What's the odds that I could see this in a regression, hunt for it for months, and just stumble onto it by accident in New Orleans? What are the oh, odds? That's crazy. It's, it's crazy. And I yeah. kept thinking that. At first, I told myself, no, this is not the painting. It looks like the painting. It's close. It's not. But at that time, like I said, I closed my eyes. I could see the painting and open my eyes. It was it. So then, mm -hmm. I'm, then I'm toying with the idea, maybe I'm not really here. Maybe I'm in a nursing home or a hospital somewhere. <laughs> and I just a lot. Maybe well, you've gone crazy and you didn't know. <laughs> you didn't notice. <laughs> I'm trying to find some kind of rational explanation. This doesn't happen. I mean, things like it happen in movies and on TV. In real life, things like this don't happen. Police officers are awful, always awful, suspicious of coincidences because we so often find they're not really coincidences. They're something somebody's done to make it look like coincidence. But I didn't see how that would, that would work in this case. I just I probably started paying for five six minutes. I was trying to figure out how this could be. Well, a salesman saw me with a hot dog. <laughs> he called and says, "I bet you think how nice I look over your fireplace." And I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I, I want. I picked a portrait of a hunchback woman. I don't know my fireplace, but anyway, I said, I don't recognize the artist. Who's the artist on this? He said, Well, come over. I got a little bio on him over here. So I went to a desk, and he found me a little sheet paper, just one little paragraph about the artist. The artist's name was J. Carol Beckwith. But I started reading the bio. And I found interesting enough that I found, you know, confirmation of what I what I'd seen in the regression. Number one, there was a painting of the hunchback woman. Number one, that the artist, interesting enough. Born in 1852, and he died in 1917. I remember my self-hypnosis seeing the number 1917. I thought, hmm. And also, I found the artist had lived. He lived. He was born in 1852, but he lived during the late 1800s, which when I saw the regression take place with the gas lights and the horse-drawn carriages. 
And also it said he'd spent some time in France. And I remember telling Dr. Griffith that we were in France. And also said that he'd won a number of awards in his life of paintings. And I remember the party I'd been at where everybody congratulated me. But again, I'm telling myself, Bob, 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 you know, this is just lucky guesses. This is all, I mean, come on. These are probably things that are common to all painters. So, but now I thought, well, now I'm getting back to Indianapolis. I can, I can reopen this case. I, can, I know who this person is. So I can go, I can investigate, I can find. I, I still figured I had seen his painting somewhere in my life. And there was a little blurb at the bottom with a little bio at the bottom. That's how I had this information. That's all. I just need to find out where I'd seen it. Once I found out where I saw it, I figured then it'll solve everything. I'll feel a lot better about it. So anyway, so I get back and I, I go to the public library and I asked uh, ask the librarian to help me to find some any information on this J. Carol Beckwith. And very little, very, very little. I mean, any book, anything about it, or just one, was one or two sentences. Apparently, he was a, basically a, mainly a portrait painter who lived in mostly New York as the last part of his painting career. And he never really painted any painting of significance during his life. There was the, He has no masterpiece painting or thing. He mainly made his money painting portraits. So anyway, she thought there, there's very little information. I told her, that's, that's all. She said, she said, you need to go up to the Art Museum. Up on north, it's on North Side of Annapolis, and look at their go to their library. They have a much more extensive art library. So I thought, okay. So I decided I decided to go up there. So I went up to the art library, and the librarian there was very helpful. She found a little bit more, not very much more, as it turned out. Found a little bit more, but unfortunately, everything she found kept being one confirmation after another. For example, I when I saw myself passing through the city, I said it was over. A, I was in a large city. Well, he died in New York City. And I and, and when I said I thought it was uh, fall of the year, he died in October. Wow. And also, they said they had some thing there saying that he was a portrait painter most of his life, but he didn't like painting painting portraits. He hated right. painting portraits, but he needed the money. And I kept hmm. thinking all these things I'd said, and also said that his paintings were full of sun and bright color. I remember the still life had had bottle and fruit and a big sun behind it. Again, I'm still thinking myself, Bob, now hang on, hang on. Is, you know, these could still be all, I'm still trying to convince myself these are all just coincidences. And finally, the uh, librarian at the Art Museum says, but we have a, a folder from an exhibition of Beckworth's work that was held here in Annapolis. And I said, hot dog. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. See, that's where I saw it. Unfortunately, the exhibition was in 1911. Hmm. And, she, and I asked her, so there's been another. You didn't see said, it. <laughs> no, apparently I did. And I asked her, been another. She said, look, he wasn't that famous. He simply wasn't that good or that famous. But I did notice in some of the uh, things she'd found about him, one of them had a footnote that said the information, this information came from James Carroll Beckwith's diaries, which are on file at the National Academy of Design in New York City. And I thought, huh, you know, that's what I need to see. I, could, I, could, I got to find out how I know so much about this person. I got to know. So I got, when I got home, I called the National Academy of Design in New York and asked them if I could see the diaries. And they said, oh, no, no, they're much too fragile. We don't let them out. They said, however... There has been microfilm made of them that you can get on an interlibrary loan from the uh, Academy of the Archives of American Art as a Smithsonian. So I said, oh, so I ordered, I ordered, I said, okay, I love it. I ordered the microfilm of his diary. So what they say to be about two weeks. So during that time, I got the tape of my regression back out and I started, li I listened to it and I wrote down everything that could be confirmed or denied of everything I'd said or done. With, with Beckwith that could be confirmed tonight. And it turned out I found 28 things I could either confirm or prove false. At, the, at this point, you know, what I was really looking for was the one the one fact that wasn't true. 
for example, I told him, I said, we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. Now, if it turned out he had a bunch of kids, then this is all wrong. This is not a real, true life. This is all screwed up. This is not really true. I was really looking for the denying factor. For example, I saw him order wine at that outdoor cafe. But I suppose if he's a teetotaler that I, or never drink wine in his life, I'd, you know, I could feel better about it. This is not all real. So anyway, I wrote it down and I got uh, 28 things. So anyway, then the, the finally, two weeks later, they called me. The library said, your microfilm has arrived. So I said, okay. I went in there real fast. Unfortunately, it turns out Beckwith was a very avid diary keeper. He kept a diary from age 19 to 65. Holy moly. 17,000 pages. Wow. Yeah. So what do you do now? So fortunately, he'd also had written an autobiography. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll I'll just pull it. And that was included in the microfilm. I thought, okay, I pull it up. Unfortunately, he started in 19, he was uh, 1917. He was kind of sickly and he was living in Santa Barbara, California. He moved out there for the weather, I guess. And he started, but he did, he didn't get, he didn't get very far before. It, but, and he only, there's only 23 pages to it. They only got up to age 21. So it was not, not much value. But also I found that he had typed, somebody had excerpted part of his diary and typed the pages. I'm not sure why. And I found a couple of interesting things in there. For one thing, he was talking about he went to art school. He was went to art school in, in Paris. He spent five years in Paris going to art school. And he mentioned one time during a summer break that he went to Venice where he lived on wine and burned eggs. Oh, so, so you I know, we're just about out of time here. So I, I just want to wrap this up by, by saying, like, what, how did you, how did you, what was the tipping point where you really believed? Because we we want we're we're unfortunately almost out of time, but I want to I want to hear that part. I still did, I still didn't believe this, but I kept the problem is I kept if I finally what happened I finally had card copy made of his diary, all seventeen thousand pages, and I read the whole diary. It took over wow. a year. It took over wow. a year because because he used pencil and scribble. But anyway, I, every I found I kept finding no denying fact. I kept finding one factor after another one after another one. Every one was confirmation. But what really put me over the edge was on December 5th, 1886, his mother, who was in church, died of a blood clot. Wow. Now, you know, you can guess a lot of things about a person's life, and but you can't guess what this person's mother died of. And I had said mm-hmm. during at the end of the regression, she died of a blood clot. The doctor says she died of a blood clot. And there were only two women in Beckwith's life who were really, really important to him. His wife and his, his mother, probably even more than his wife, because his mother was the one who had encouraged him to become an artist. His dad had always said oh, being an artist is the best way he knew of starving to death. He tried to discourage his mother, encourage him. He loved his mother dearly. Mm. And, I, you know, you can guess, again, you can guess a lot of things. But eventually, how, I ended up, how did that change you? Like, how did that change well, you? I mean, I said, then you have to realize, Bob, you're just being a stub. But come on, because I ended up actually eventually ended up proving all 28. And I, I mean, you can guess a lot of things about a person's life. You can guess things and be right. You can't guess 28 things without a miss. You can't have 28 hits without a single miss. It's not possible. It's not. I had, and then finally, you realize this is a real, true past life. And a lot of this information recorded nowhere publicly. You mm. had, to, like I said, I had to get, a, get his diaries, which are not published anywhere. They're, you're, they're simply at the, on, at the archives of American art. And the real problem with this sort of thing was really wasn't that I proved it. The hard part was accepting what it meant. Yeah. It meant I had to realize that everything I believed my whole life was wrong. My view of the universe, how the universe worked, was wrong. And mm. the people I always thought were a little bit kooky, a little off, little off the grid people were right. They were the ones who were right, and I was the one wrong. 
And that, that took me a while. It took me a while to adjust your complete thinking about the universe, to take a complete reversal of your former view of the, of the universe and realize it's the opposite of what you thought it was. It's, that, that's a hard not, thing Not everyone do. can do that. Some people, even when faced with that evidence, they won't let go of their old beliefs. So kudos to you for allow, you know, allowing that to change your mind about something so profound. Yeah. Again, I was a police officer for a lot of years, and a lot of times you're investigating cases. You're sure you knew A did it. You're shooting up A did it. And you start investigating, you realize, nope, nope, A didn't do it. B did it. You have to turn around. You, I mean, you got your, all your focus set on proving that A committed this murder. And instead, all the evidence points toward B. And you realize at the end, you need to change your mind, turn around. It's going to go in the opposite direction you thought it was going. And what's the same way with this? I mean, I was, again, I always believed in I'd live on evidence. Prove to me. Show me proof. And here I had it. I mean, how can, how can you deny that it's true? I mean, the proven 28th fact about a person's life, that, believe me, there is nothing about it. There's no movies about him, no books about him, nothing. You, how, to be able to get to no 28 facts, a lot of them very personal facts. I guess there's a book about him now. And, and speaking of that, how, how do people find your book if they want to read the whole story? It's, it is on uh, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Amazon. It's on all the – most bookstores can get a copy of it. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story. I hope everybody runs out and gets your book, Portrait so of too. a Past Life Skeptic, um, because it's so fascinating how you, you know, I think it's kind of like everybody wants to find proof that their past lives are true, and it's amazing that you actually did. Well, yes. I was kind of, my, my was kind of fortunate. I mean, I, I had a lot of information enough during the investigation. I had a lot of information simply actually dumped in my lap from unknown, so from sources I didn't expect. So I, all I don't those know. coincidences, coincidences. Yeah, yeah, there, there were an awful lot of coincidences happening during during my search during yeah. my search for information. There really were, and I, I, it got kind of spooky. At one time, it got kind of, almost kind of spooky. Oh, she sees something well, happening. You must have felt like you were meant to find that information. Yeah, I meant- did. That's why yeah. you feel like you're a guide. You feel like you're guided to certain right. places. You're you were you were guided to certain. If we have time, I'll take one example. When I was. Uh, trying to find the actual portrait of that punchback woman again after I'd seen it in New Orleans. And I went, I went, to, I went to a uh, art dealer and talked to him about where you can find these things. Because what happened is I went back to New Orleans to get I was going to get, at least get a picture, maybe buy it, get a picture of it. It had been sold. And mm-hmm. I lost track of it. So I was trying to find it. And a gentleman handed me a book of, uh, of a magazine about our American art, American art review. He said, this is how we find, thing we advertise in this book paintings i opened it the very first thing to open was a beckwith painting which is wow. real coincidence it's called fences it was about a, and it was owned by a, a bound sale by art guy in york so i called this art guy and talked to him about the hunchback woman he didn't know anything so he put me in touch with an expert on american art apparently there's a lot of forgeries in art and he, said, and he uses this woman to, to, as a detective and i was talking to her and, I, and she she gave me, she just dumped some right from my lap. He had talked in his diary about working on his scrapbooks. He probably missed a hundred times I worked on my scrapbook. I could not find where they were at and no information. And we are we we're talking about the Hunchback Woman painting, and she just blurred out, said, you know what a scrapbook at the New York Historical Society, don't you? And I didn't. Hmm. And that's wow. how I found them. This, it's, this is like this happened. So happened really? A dozen, a dozen times at least. That's so amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story with us. Um, it was so fascinating, and I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a copy of your book so I can get all the ins and outs of it and and finish reading it. So, thank you so much, Robert, for being on our show today. Well, thank you, thank you for having me on your show. 
And thanks all of you guys for tuning in. Um, don't forget to subscribe and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts because I know you're not going to want to miss a word of the inspiring conversations that we have here every week. Thanks for joining us here on The Miracle of Healing right here on Mind, Body, Spirit FM. Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.